Hi, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together with Bruce, my husband, uh, we have written, I don't know, 35 cookbooks, 36, including our latest, the Instant Air Fryer Bible, which can get you using your air fryer in every way imaginable. In this episode of our Food and Cooking Podcast, we want to talk about tips for a healthier new year, or at least outrageous, insane tips for an, uh, <laughs> New Year. Things that are just insane and silly. We want to have our one-minute cooking tip. As always, Bruce has an interview with David Garcia Aguirre, a master olive oil miller. And we're going to talk about what's making us happy in food this week. So let's get started. It's the new year, and Mark and I have decided for a resolution not to make any resolutions <laughs> because we just think I'm just too old. they're silly. They I'm are. way too old. They're, I don't really, you know what? The the only renovation that's going to happen to me is a coffin. So, <laughs> oh, well, maybe a knee or a hip. I don't oh, know. Maybe that, I don't know. But it, you know, we silly. had this thing when we lived back in New York, and we could walk to our gym. We never went the first two weeks in January. No. That was a resolution we made, not I, to go the first two weeks because it was so crowded. I hated it. We belonged to Chelsea Piers in New York City, and it was only a block and a half from our apartment in Chelsea before Chelsea was hit, when Chelsea still had, oh, prostitutes on the corners at night. And uh, I, I just made this whole thing that I wouldn't go to the gym from January 1st to the 15th because it was just a billion people, and by the 15th, they were all gone. All gone. Nice. Okay. <laughs> go back now we to can going go back. to the gym. <laughs> so here's the thing. Every year, I like to take a look at what the big media outlets say you should be doing to make your life better in the new year. I ran across some absolutely outrageous advice tips, and we want to share some of those yeah. with you. Yeah, here's what we want to do. We want to talk about three or four tips, maybe four, right, yep. in which we found that are just absolutely bogus and crazy. We want to talk about why they're bogus, and then we want to talk a little bit about how you know how to adjudicate what you read in the oh, media. So, so a little bit about food media literacy mm -hmm. in this first segment. So let's start off with the mm -hmm, venerable New York Times that ran <laughs> a feature about coffee. Yeah, this was part of their how to like be healthier in the new year. And one of the things they said is you should feel better about your morning coffee. Why? They say, well, a study found that people who drank three and a half cups of coffee each morning, I love this, were 30% less likely to die. To die. To die from a whole list of things than people who don't drink okay. that much coffee. I'm going to say something before we even start into this about drink three and a half cups of coffee each morning to have a better chance of not dying. <laughs> I want to say that one of the ways that you can be media literate is anything that says a study says or scientists say is bogus. I can almost guarantee you it's bogus. It doesn't mean that there aren't a collection of scientists who don't think certain things like, for example, the earth is round. <laughs> of course, scientists say the earth is round. But in just random, strange stories, one of the sniff tests I always give it is a study without naming the study or scientists. And what does that mean? There are thousands of kinds of scientists, thousands of different scientists who study different things, biochemists, physicists. What does scientist mean? And the thing is, 
I found this same advice given in a lot of media news outlets, yeah, not just the a problem. slash the New York Times. And nobody said where the study was. No one said so. I had to do a lot of Googling and research to find the study, and I finally found it. it was okay, a here U- it is. Here it it is. was a UK study, and it followed 200,000 people. Which is, let's just stop. That's a great sample. 200,000 is mm-hmm. a giant study. Mm-hmm. But let's also say it's just the UK, right? Okay, so well, go we'll on. get to that. But what they were looking at was not how much coffee you drink in the morning. They were looking at the difference between people who drank sugared coffee and black coffee. So people who drank the black coffee were more likely to stay alive than the people who drank the heavily sugared coffee. And when this got picked up by the U.S. media and the Canadian media, both we should say, the story suddenly became that if you drink coffee, you're 30% less likely to die. But the study was about Brits who drank sugar coffee versus sweet coffee. And right there is a problem, right, Brits? It's because societal influence, where you live, the environment around you, the rest of your diet behavior, what kind of medical care you right. get in your That's right. community, That's all right. has a huge impact on whether you live or die, not whether you're drinking three cups of coffee in the morning. That's right. There was a study out not so long ago, and this isn't to mean to pick on anybody. Oh, it was a couple of years ago. I remember this study very well. And it came out that basically said that, you know, breaded processed foods weren't as bad uh, for you as advertised. Okay, that's all right. But the part of the problem of the study is the study was done almost 100% in the Bay Area of California, where physical fitness is a Mm -hmm. true fad. And it didn't take into account things like the difference between the Bay Area of California and West Virginia or Tennessee or even rural rural New England where I live, where there are plenty of super obese people who in fact, eat a lot of processed food. It's a complete. It's so bogus because you've taken this, this kind of microcosm, the Bay Area, and you've generalized it out to a trend. It's not true. And in this case, you can't make the UK stand for all of the planet. By no, because any the people stretches. Victoria tried to. Queen Victoria <laughs> tried to do that, but you okay. can't do it. Okay. Well, now you take the health and the dietary behaviors of the people living in the part of the UK and I didn't even say which part my guess is that they picked one county yeah, somewhere or, and or now London. you and now you say let's compare that to the people that live in Bangladesh yeah, exactly. You can't make that comparison. Or, or you, 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 you know, you use a sampling from I don't know Bath, England, but that doesn't take into account people who live in I don't know northern rural Scotland. No. It's 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 really suspect, even as a study of Brits. But then to be extrapolated out and to drop the sugared part of the study and just say, well, coffee makes you live longer, that is. Exactly what happens. And one media outlet runs it, the New York Times, and then everybody picks it up. Everybody yep. runs with the story. Oh, look at this. This is so good. Well, so here's another, here's, a, here's another thing, and we're going to pick on the New York Times a lot. Here's another the one. same article. They say, think about hydrating with foods oh, instead of water. Okay, I'm going to hydrate with a steak. Seriously? <laughs> I'm going to hydrate with no, a steak. No, but they go on to explain the kinds of foods that you oh, can hydrate okay. with. So Good. here, what's wrong with the scenario? You come in from shoveling or gardening. You're sweaty. You're really thirsty. You're, and you're only talking about me because you hate gardening and shoveling. So, no, okay. But I shovel, I, too. Uh, so we come in come sweaty. On. We come in thirsty. Do we turn on the tap and hydrate with a glass of water? Yes. Or do we eat a cucumber? 
No. Or a cantaloupe. No. Because these are the foods they're suggesting you can hydrate with. No. I mean, I'm an <laughs> avid, avid gardener. Bruce enjoys the gardens but does not garden. And I have gardened, oh, gosh, well over an acre of our property here in New England. And, you know, I mean, I I work really hard at it, spreading metric tons of mulch. And uh, I come inside and the first thing I do is drink. Two or three glasses of water. I think next summer when you come in, the first thing I'm going to do is hand you a cucumber. No. I, you know what? No. That is so dumb. Of course there's a lot of water in cucumber or watermelon uh-huh. or cantaloupe or honeydew or tomatoes. But you know what hydrates really well? Water. Yeah. Th- no. I don't want to come in and eat a tomato or go to the gym or go for a run and come in and eat a tomato. That is absolutely insane. I don't know. I don't know what they're thinking, except they're just thinking that, oh, we want to say something new. And so we should say something to do. Vogue magazine. Here's another one. They approached a bunch of celebrities. Now, th- this, I should tell you, is another red flag, just like studies say or a study says and scientists say another big red flag for me is celebrities say because honestly <laughs> I remember oh wait I have to before we get to Vogue magazine I have to tell you a little story years ago when Bruce and I were first together he worked for an advertising firm and they did uh, they specialized in book publishing advertising and there was a diet book that came out from Mary Lou Henner oh do you remember God, this yes, and I Bruce had to this. work on the campaign and she had this whole thing mm. that you want to eat and I'm not making this mm-hmm. up so that your poop is floaters not sinkers yeah she said if floaters are a healthier body than than sinkers and I remember being so outraged. But I, she's Mary Lou Henner. I, exactly. I remember <laughs> screaming at Bruce, how can you in good conscience even work on this advertising because campaign? Because it paid our rent. Well, okay. But um, <laughs> I was just so obsessed with it because I thought, who is Mary Lou Henner to give me diet advice or to give anybody? Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't eat more fiber. You should, because scientists say <laughs> that, you Mary should, Lou Henner says. <laughs> but that you should eat more fiber. However... Celebrities, blech. So in Vogue magazine, for example, these are some of their tips. And one of them was... Smoke more weed. Thank you, Seth Rogen. Uh, I mean, That was it. So they had this whole list. Some of it was actually good. One of the... I don't remember who they were, but one celebrity was like, get lots of sleep. And one is drink lots of water. And that's great. I mean, I I don't need a celebrity to tell me that. But smoke more weed. Uh, And now I have to tell you this. Okay. And see, this is a perfect example. When I was a freshman in college, yes, this is true. And and we're talking here the late seventies. So I was a freshman in college and this was all still pretty new stuff. And there weren't gyms around as there are now. No, 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 not at all. And so I had a roommate who was Oh, gosh, who was just addicted to his bong. And he would smoke that bong like crazy. I mean, insane. It stank so bad. Anyway, but he was the most unhealthy human I have ever seen. He laid around in a bed and smoked weed and drank like crazy. Yes, at Baylor, a Baptist university. Meanwhile, the guy next door to us also smoked a lot of weed back in the early 70s. But he jogged, back when jogging crazy was crazy, but he jogged five, six, seven, eight miles a day. So, of course, he was in great shape. And he might say, see, smoking weed kept yeah. me in shape. See, Once again, you have to look weed. at every aspect of the people involved in the study. Yeah. Okay. So the Today Show offered it seven good for you trends for 2023 recently, and that included a plant 
based ranch dressing. Oh, I love this. So you have to add this ranch dressing to your life to make you feel better in the world. That is so ridiculous. So ridiculous. Just because it's plant-based, does it make it healthier? Well, nope. Dina Champion, who is a registered dietitian in Ohio State, says... It does not necessarily. A common misconception, she says, is that a label that states plant-based or vegan automatically equals healthier. But remember, a vegan donut is still a donut. Yeah, yeah there's the lesson for life. A vegan donut is still a donut. I think that, that plant-based is another one of those things that is a red flag for me in media literacy. Doesn't mean healthy it doesn't just by itself. mean healthier. And I am eating more plant-based. As we've talked about already on this podcast, long before the new year, I started this thing that I won't eat meat more than once a day as a general rule. Now, listen, when I was with my family over Christmas and with Bruce's family over Christmas, there was no way I could enforce this rule because, of course, they're all huge carnivores on all sides And we went out for tongue taco lunches. Yeah, and and there was no way. And I wasn't going to be the idiot who's like, no, I can't go to the taqueria because, you know, I can't eat meat and blah, 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 blah. I wasn't going to be that person. So it's not a hard and fast rule for me, but I would prefer to eat meat or fish, and I count fish as part of meat, no more than once a day. And so, yes, of course, do I think plant-based eating is healthier? Yes, I do. But do I think plant-based gets thrown around as some kind of moniker for bad advice, like plant-based ranch dressing is somehow healthy? No, I don't. It's like, Bruce and I talk about this all the time, vegan cheese. It sounds great. And it does sound great. We went to a North Carolina restaurant in Asheville, Plant, and it's a vegan restaurant, and they do their own vegan cheeses. And the vegan cheeses there were delicious. Mm-hmm. They even have a vegan cheese aging mm-hmm. cave for their vegan cheeses. But the vegan cheese that gets put on pizzas, let's say when you order the vegan uh, cheese. It's not the kind of vegan cheese we have in that restaurant. That stuff no. is made from nuts and yeast. This stuff that you get when you order vegan cheese on a pizza is basically just congealed oil. Uh, yeah. Now, I'm sure there are high-end pizzerias who are doing, you know, cashew cheese instead of ricotta. I'm sure. But for a general rule, yeah, the, the general vegan cheese general. is, you might as well just eat Crisco. You just pour some oil on your pizza. Right. It's yeah. the same thing as eating Crisco. It's just an emulsified, hydrogenated, and stabilized oil product. It's not necessarily healthier for it. So how do you know who to trust? Well, the North Dakota State University website offers up this advice. North Dakota State? Yeah. Do you know that of all, <laughs> have we had this discussion of all? No, we haven't had it on the podcast. We've had it with our niece. Uh, who are going to college next year. We have all public universities. I believe North Dakota State has the highest admission to Ivy League business graduate programs of any state college, state-run college. If you're going to college, go there. (laughs) Okay, so North Dakota State. Here's three things from their huge list. Are the recommendations made that you read based on a single study? Because one study may not prove anything It might, but it probably doesn't. It takes several studies where evidence accumulates, it's compared, and bit by bit, the truth is uncovered. Okay, and does the advice cast doubt on reputable scientific organizations? Don't be skeptical or fearful just by implication. And listen, there's a lot of ways that you cast doubt that actually begin as doubt and then reform scientific theory. One thinks of string theory in physics that begin as a doubt and then slowly reform. But however, 
if it's sensationalized mm-hmm. as the doubt, like, oh, we've always thought that blank, but now we know blank. We always thought that oranges were good for you, and now we know they're poison. If you hear such things, just be very skeptical of them because one voice screaming aloud doesn't necessarily mean it's true. Sometimes the voice in the wilderness is right, but oftentimes the guy standing on the corner of 34th and 8th Avenue screaming is not. No, he's usually right. insane. Right. And does the advice include recommendations drawn from studies? That ignore the differences between groups and individuals. Oh, that's that's like the thing about the coffee study in just the UK. That's just the UK, and it's not the rest of the world. Animals and people are different. So was the study about giraffes, and now they're telling you how to treat your dogs and cats. Men and women are different. Was a study all about women and giving men advice from yep. it. Age, economics, race, many other factors are really important when you look at the results of studies. And you should know that there's a lot of research these days that, uh, for economic reasons, because it's less expensive, takes part in locations that are extraordinarily non-diversified populations. For example, they'll go to the Azores, or they'll go to the Canary Islands, or they'll go to, um, I don't know, they'll go to Dubai and only uh, do the study amongst East Indian workers in Dubai. There's an economic reason for this, because it's cheaper to do this, but what you're dealing with then is an incredibly non-diversified population. That's a wonderful study, and the results should be taken seriously by the East Indian workers in Dubai. It is not a worldwide result. No, because the cow I eat, or the beans I eat, or the carrots I eat, or the cabbage I eat has different chemical signatures, has different varietal problems, has different fiber content. Everything about it changes across locales. Mm-hmm. This even goes when comparing, say, the food groups of New England and the dietary health of New England with, say, the dietary health of Oklahoma. Yeah. I, and I'm not casting aspersions in Oklahoma. No. There are things about Oklahoma that would make New England look sad, and there are things about New England that would make Oklahoma look sad. So you have to take into account the actual population that was studied. Okay, so enough about all the problems with the outrageous food tips that come out in the new year. We hope you'll subscribe to this podcast. We hope you'll rate it. It would be really great if you could drop down on the Apple list, if you could look up at the top of the Spotify page. You'll see ways to rate this podcast. And dropping a comment in Google or Apple is even better, even something as similar as great podcasts. Thank you so much for doing that. So up next, segment two. Our one-minute cooking tip. Buy a pastry brush. Keep it with your everyday tools. Baste meat with it instead of using a baster. If your recipe has you breading chicken breasts or cutlets and you have have to dip them in flour and dip them in eggs and dip them in breadcrumbs, use the pastry brush and brush them with flour. And then you could save a whole dirty bowl. Buy a pastry brush. It's true. Pastry brushes are amazing tools in the kitchen. Mm, And they're also tools uh, once you've finished for uh, wiping crap off cutting boards, um, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons you should have a pastry brush. Up next on our podcast, Bruce's interview with David Garcia Aguirre. 
the Master Olive Miller at Corto Olive Company in California. Today, I'm talking with Master Olive Miller, David Garcia Aguirre from Corto Olive Company. David is an olive oil guru who's dedicated to the advancement of high-quality olive oil production, research, and education. Dave is going to talk with me about what it takes to make great olive oil and what we need to look for when we buy some. Hey, David. Hello, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Hey, let's just start right off the top. What makes olive oil different from all the other oils we eat? Anytime I have these kinds of conversations, this is how I start these conversations for a very simple reason. One of the most unfortunate things that happened to olive oil is that it got lumped into the edible oil category. I say that because all edible oils, olive oil aside, but the rest of the edible oils, all of them, I don't care what it is, uh, they all are made in a very different way than olive oil is made. These oils from the very beginning are destined to become odorless, colorless fats. And in order to be that, they go through a really heavy process. Uh, they're bleached, they're deodorized, and the refining, bleaching, and deodorizing process removes anything interesting about the oil itself. So you're basically left with an odorless, colorless fat. Olive oil at its best is the exact opposite of that. The best way to think about olive oil, and this is a kind of a, a really important thing, is we have to forget everything we know about olive oil and we have to think of it differently. And the best way to think about it is not like an edible oil or a fat, but more like a juice. Because essentially, olive oil is fresh pressed juice. It's not refined. It's not bleached. It's not deodorized. It's an expression of the fruit that it came from. In that regard, like any juice, the olive oil is only ever going to be as good as the fruit that it came from. Is that why not all olive oils are created equal? I'd say there's two main reasons why olive oils are not created equal. Number one, we have a tasting that we use at Cordo, which uh, we have divided into two flights as two parts of an equation. You have to have both of these parts of this equation in order to have a high quality product. And the equation is very simple. The fruit that the olive came from has to be fresh and high quality. So fresh fruit. The second part of the equation is the oil itself has to be fresh as well. So if you could start off with a beautiful olive oil, and if it's not taken care of, right, it's going to oxidize rapidly and you're gonna end up with a rancid oil. So, you know, what we typically see on the shelf is something of either of those where it's either made from poor quality fruit, like most of the world's olive oil, and or it's totally rancid by the time the consumer gets it. How do I know when I go to buy a bottle of olive oil in the supermarket that it's not rancid? I mean, honestly, like this is this is the question I get asked the most is how, you know, I'm in the supermarket, how and you're looking at a hundred bottles on the shelf, right? Because it's a crazy category where it's just, you know, there's overwhelming amount of bottles. How do I know what's good and what's not? And from my point of view, you know, my my job as a master miller is not just making high quality oil. It's making sure that my customers get high quality oil. Mm. I don't know that I could do that in retail at through supermarkets. So I, I, honestly, I, my answer would be don't buy it at the supermarket. <laughs> get it from the right? maker if you can. Exactly. Get it directly from the maker, um, someone you trust, someone or there's a face behind the product. You know, we joke here that olive oil is the ingredient that farm to table forgot. Mm. All these ingredients have gone through this rebirth of getting to know where it came from and how it's made and all of this, this beautiful, you know, background behind the ingredients and in, in kitchens at home and in restaurants. 
And, uh, you know, unfortunately, olive oil is just it. Nobody knows where it came from or who made it. Take me through the process of how you make oil from the tree to the bottle at Corto. I'll reinforce this message. We have to remember that olives are a fruit. And like any fruit, there's a very short window when that fruit is at its peak. I, I like to use the analogy of an orange tree in your backyard. And, you know, that orange early on, it was a blossom and then it became a fruit and that fruit grew and eventually it hits its pinnacle, right? That perfect moment. And that's usually sometime in December. And that orange is sweet. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. If you go out to your backyard and you juice that orange, it's going to taste like really high quality, fresh. It's going to be like that orange. Now, let's say on your way back there, you got distracted by something and you forgot about your orange. Say a dog runs through your your screen door or something, and you forget about that orange. And so December turns into January, turns into February, turns into March. <laughs> what happens to that orange on the tree? It continues to ripen to the point where it becomes overripe. And then eventually it's, you know, it starts to ferment. It starts producing alcohols and eventually it falls off the tree. Now, the important thing to understand is that most of the world's, and I'll put it in quotations, quote unquote, extra virgin olive oil, comes from olives that are like that second orange. They've gone through a long, they've missed that pinnacle moment, that, that perfect moment to harvest. It sat on the tree until they begin to ferment. They start producing alcohols, which produce defective oils. And that's probably about 70 to 80% of the oil that's made worldwide. So that's the first part of this is it has the fruit itself has to be harvested within that really short window and you can make the premium orange juice or olive oil. <laughs> yeah. And then the second part of all of this is once you have that oil, all of your energy, let's talk, we'll talk about the good oil. Once you make that beautiful olive oil, all of your energy has to change and it, you have to shift to protecting that oil from light, heat and air in everything you do from storage to the type of package you choose, to how you distribute the product, to where you sell. It's a totally different mindset. And so at Cordo, in a nutshell, we've embodied that philosophy in the way we make olive oil. Talk about that process and how you put that philosophy into action. Sure. So uh, about 20 years ago, a new planting method was developed. And this planting method threw the entire industry upside down, because up until that point, everything was hand harvested. And as you can imagine, the volume of extra, quote unquote, extra virgin olive oil consumed was way more than we have people to hand harvest, right? So this technological advancement, you know, 20, 25 years ago, really flipped the industry upside down because it's the first time we've been able to produce high quality olive oil at scale. So we call it vineyard style, high density, super high density, but basically it's a mechanized harvest in the fall during that peak window. So we do, that's what we do. So we went all in. So our harvesters go out, they're harvesting 24 seven in a 40 day period. So that window is very short. And the moment the fruit comes off the tree, they're rushed here to the mill. A mill is basically a giant juice plant. As I said, it's it, my job. I don't like to tell this to too many people. But my job is a master miller. It's actually pretty easy. As long as I start with good fruit, I can make a good oil. So the olives come in, uh, in trailers, they get unloaded. We remove anything that's not high quality fruit. So that could be like leaves or sticks or maybe some damaged fruit or last year's fruit that was still on the tree. We have equipment that removes all of that. So all we're left with are pristine olives. Okay. Those olives then get crushed. 
through what we call a hammer mill or a blade crusher. They're different kinds, but they essentially get crushed. And this is, this is why I love being a master miller is this moment. So the oil that's in the olives is actually distributed through the flesh of the olive in teeny tiny microscopic droplets. And this oil at this point, it doesn't have color. There's no aroma. There's no antioxidants. There's none of these health benefits. There's no flavor. There's nothing. It's just oil. All of that beautiful stuff that we end up with in a great bottle, all of that happens in the milling process. And that's that for me is uh, that's what gets me going. So how does that happen? Yeah. So the moment those olives are crushed, then the the oil is exposed to the rest of the olive, the water, the uh, you know the 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 uh, skins and the flesh and everything. And that's when this crazy biochemistry starts happening that produces these beautiful aromatic compounds and and these really healthy polyphenols move into the oil and these wonderful flavors and everything happen. And that happens in about a 20 to 25 minute period, which we call malixation. So we go crushing, then it's malixation. And malixation is really just a slow agitation of this paste that we have now in a very controlled environment. So we don't want oxygen in there. We don't, it can't be hot. So we do it as cold as we possibly can, because that's how we retain all of those flavors and nutrients. Once the oil has all the flavor we want, and once we're confident that it's good and ready to separate, then what we use now is we use centrifuges. And then that separates all of the heavy things, so the water and everything, the other parts of the olive, from the oil. So what you're left with is you're left with fresh oil and you're left with the pomace, which is the, the paste. Once the oil is extracted, we call it pomace. That oil then goes to one more centrifuge, a finisher, polisher, and that's it. At that moment, you have your fresh pressed, high quality olive oil. How do you then package it and transport it to retain its peak freshness? So the moment the oil's out of the olive, it goes into our cellars. And our cellars, we've determined, are about the, the best environment you can have to slow down oxidation. You can't stop oxidation. That's why the human body ages, right? We haven't figured out how to stop it yet, but we can definitely slow it down by doing things like keeping the oil cool, right? Keeping light, heat, and air away. So in our cellars, we have stainless steel casks. Uh, they're kept under nitrogen to keep, all, the oil's kept under nitrogen to keep all the, the oxygen out, mm -hmm. and it's all climate controlled. So that's great. It's in our cellar and it's protected, but what happens next, right? What about the real world? So the decisions, you know, what we've decided to do is we only package enough to fill the orders that are coming in. And that way the oil spends the least amount of time in the real world, but it's going into the real world, right? Yeah. So that's when the packaging choice becomes critical. What packages out there that protects it from light, heat, and air? And after extensive testing, we found that the best package to protect olive oil from light, heat, and air is uh, what we call a flavor lock box. It's basically a bag and box. Mm. And if you think about it, the cardboard blocks the light. The cardboard acts as an insulator. And then the bag itself protects the oil from oxygen, not just until you open it, but the entire time you use it. Right. And so that's how we're able to guarantee fresh oil through the last drop. David, you threw out the words extra virgin earlier. So let me ask you, are those terms extra virgin and virgin still meaningful in the U.S. olive oil market? I describe it like this. Extra virgin is like getting a D in school because there are two components to an oil being extra virgin. 
Number one, it has to go through a chemical analysis. And number two, it has to go through a sensory analysis. So a trained sensory panel tastes oils blind, but all they are looking for is any defect. So in order to be extra virgin, by, the, by definition, the definition is the oil must have zero defects. Okay. And so why do I say that's like a D in school? Well, that doesn't mean you did anything well, right? All that means that there's nothing wrong with it. And we deal with a lot of chefs. And I always, I always joke with the chefs when we were talking about this. And I say, you know, it's like going, imagine going to your fishmonger and, and you see this boat of fresh fish coming in and that fish, you know, it's going to be amazing. And you tell your fishmonger, you say, you know what? Give me some fish that's got nothing wrong with it. And he goes into the back and grabs some fish that's been there for three days. It's not quite rancid yet, right? So, you know, and he brings you that fish. It's just, it doesn't make sense. And that's how we think about olive oil for some reason. So you are not labeling your oils as extra virgin? So we do. So California has its own extra virgin standard. And it's the strictest standard in the world. And that's great. The pro so it's like it's like a C minus. <laughs> the problem with that is that all of the testing happens at the time of production. Hmm. And as we know, olive oil, you can't stop oxidation, right? So right. that has very little bearing with what's actually on the shelf. So, you know, the reality is if we could take the words extra virgin, if we could, if we could just get rid of the old way of thinking altogether, I mean, extra virgin has become a commodity at this point. Right. If we could just get rid of that and start new with some new language, I would be all over it. Let's talk about cooking with oil. So now we you've made this beautiful oil. You've packaged it in a way that will keep it as fresh as can be for as long as possible. I get it home. Should I saute with it? Will it lose its flavor and nutrition over high heat? So the answer is very simple. Fresh, high quality olive oil is the most stable cooking oil there is. And there's a very simple reason for that. We've talked about what makes olive oil different from all the other oils, right? It's mm -hmm. essentially it's fresh pressed juice. So it retains all of the flavors, it retains the aromas, and it retains all of the antioxidants from the fruit itself. When the oil is fresh and high quality, then the oil itself, because of these antioxidants, won't break down in a pan like refined oils do. Now we all get tripped up on this smoke point deal. So I'll, I'll address that. Smoke point is kind of ridiculous because you can't just say that an oil has a smoke point because it depends on the batch of oil. It depends on how fresh it is. I mean, smoke, like any oil is going to have huge ranges of smoke point and olive oil is no different. So we were talking earlier about our orange, right? That really beautiful orange. Mm -hmm. So the, and so start with a premium olive. If you extract the oil from a premium olive, it's going to have an extremely high smoke point. Now, as that olive hangs on the tree and ferments, right, it's rotting, it's becoming overripe, it starts to ferment, the actual fats are breaking down in that olive. So when you extract the oil, if you juice that rotten orange, right, that oil is going to have a much lower smoke point. And because most of the oil in the United States, especially, is from overripe olives, most of the extra quote unquote extra virgin olive oil in the US does have a low smoke point. That doesn't mean it has to, that just means that it's very low quality. Well, the quality of the fruit determines the quality of the oil. 
exactly. which determines the quality the exactly. smoke point. And then we shouldn't be worried about sauteing over high heat. Not only should you not be worried about it, you should be excited that not only does it have a high smoke point, it also has a bunch of antioxidants in it which make it a really healthy and stable cooking oil. David, as a cookbook author, I'm always looking for new, exciting ways to use great tasting products. So I want to ask you, what are your favorite ways to use olive oil aside from salads or simply using it to dip bread into? Let's talk about baking, for example. People always shy from using olive oil in baking because it has a strong, quote unquote, strong flavor which is absurd to me because in my world, that just means you're not using the right variety of olive oil because the, the olive oil in baked goods in, 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 as, a, as an ingredient in things has such a, a unique ability to be complementary to foods. Hmm. And, and so like, for example, uh, in California, we used to have a really big table olive industry. And the variety, one of the varieties that was used is called Oscalano. And Oscalano is this giant olive and it is a pain in the butt to get the oil out. However, when you do get the oil out, it is extremely unique. It, it really smells like melons, like someone's just chopping up melons, cantaloupe, uh, honeydew. And it's just, it's a very like tropical fruit flavor and aroma. And when it's in baked goods, it's remarkable. It's just, it adds a whole layer of depth to the flavor that you'll never, ever get with any other kinds of fats. At Cordo, do you sell different varietals of oils? So we use different varietals in our blend. So we we deal mostly with, with chefs into food service. So really high-end restaurants across the country. And we have one product we call Truly, which is a blend of Arbequina and Arbisana, which are two Spanish varietals, mm -hmm. and uh, Koroniki, which is a Greek varietal. And we blend that for a consistent product for chefs. Mm -hmm. And when I talk to people now, it's like, I can take my Cordo hat off, right? And I'll tell you, once you open the door to the world of fresh, high quality olive oil, I encourage people to go try other oils, find other varieties. You look at oils from other countries, uh, different terroirs that you just have to understand that it has to be fresh and high quality or none of that matters. So aside from baking, if you want to have a really exciting uh, use for the oil, something that'll make your dinner guests go, wow, what should we do? Another one, another great pairing is olive oil and chocolate, whether it's just a truffle sitting in olive oil with a little salt. Chocolate and olives sound like a fantastic combination. That's one of the parts about my job that excites me the most is like once people start under, like once you think about it differently, now it's like, oh my gosh, like there's so much that we can do with, with fresh, high quality olive oil that we're not currently doing because we haven't been thinking about it the right way. So we need to just be getting our hands on fresher olive oil made from better fruit, like what you're making at Quarto Olive Company, Master Olive Miller, David Garcia Aguirre. Thank you so much for spending some time talking about all things olive oil and what you're doing at the Quarto Olive Company. Yeah, my pleasure, Bruce. Thank you so much. I, I have to tell you a story. Well, Bruce knows the story, but I'm going to tell you a story. When I was in grad school in Madison, Wisconsin, 
I, this is the mid 80s, and olive oil is just becoming a thing in the United States. Of course, it's a thing in Italy. Oh my God, it's been a thing in Italy for hundreds of years. (laughs) Greece and other places. (laughs) And so I found a recipe in Bon Appetit. This has to be like 1986. In Bon Appetit for something, and it called for olive oil. And I had never actually, a good Southern boy, this is 86, I had never heard of olive oil. So we went to the supermarket to buy some. They had none at the supermarket in Madison. They sent me to the drugstore, <laughs> and olive oil was sold as a, what an ointment called sweet oil. And I am sure it was not food safe olive oil, but I bought this little bottle of quote unquote sweet, sweet oil. oil and used it to fry. I don't know. I'm surprised it wasn't sold as a laxative. Well, it could have been, yeah. for all I know. Yeah. I don't know. I, they ta- they said, go to the drugstore. That's the only place they have these things. And I was like, oh, okay. And I bought it. Sweet oil. Isn't well, that funny? My big takeaway from that conversation, though, is how oil is packaged. I am going to be looking for the bag in the box now because that is really clearly, according to David, the only way to make sure your oil stays unoxidized until mm. you finish it up. Mm. And so mm. start looking in our pantry, Mark, for the olive oil, the bag in the box, with the spigot, and we <laughs> that's how we're doing olive oil Which, from now on. Yeah, the box also keeps the uh, the light away from it. It does. Right? It's and a brilliant it's a brilliant so, thing. It is. Okay, so we want to tell you a little bit of news information before we go on to the last segment of the podcast. For our knitting listeners out there, many of you know that I am also a knitter. I've written some knitting books, and many of my patterns, in fact, Almost all the patterns I have knitted and created are now for sale individually on my website, BruceWeinstein.net. I also have opened an Etsy shop where you can find all my patterns, and you can go to the Etsy shop, and it's called Nice Knitting Patterns. And so, <laughs> just, nice. I couldn't believe that patterns. name was available on Etsy. Nice knitting patterns. Okay. So you can go to BruceWeinstein.net or Nice Knitting Patterns to take a look at my knitting patterns. All right. Our last segment, as is traditional, what's making us happy in food this week? You get to start. I love chocolate-covered orange peel. We <laughs> bought a ton of it when we were in Toronto we over did. Thanksgiving. and No, no, we didn't. You I did. did. And I thought we had finished it all. And I found a little bag of them hidden away in one of our little pottery things in the dining room. Oh, so I've been enjoying them. We were in dinner. Toronto and Bruce was <laughs> craving chocolate. And I have to tell you that we were watching the Rings of Power every afternoon. We would go. We had this Airbnb on the 40th floor of this building with this gorgeous view of Toronto. And so every day we'd go out and we'd walk miles and miles and miles around Toronto. I mean, it was crazy how much we walked. And exploring the city and having lunch and going various places and stores. And it was just brilliant. And then we'd come home about 4 in the afternoon and dinner would be 7 or 8 at night. And for the intervening time, we watch Rings of Power on the Lord of the Rings thing on HBO, right, or something. <laughs> so anyway, we... Or, Prime? I don't know where it is. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Bruce, in the middle of watching all the Rings of Power, was like, I want chocolate. So we paused it, and he went out and went across the street to some chocolate place and bought candy-covered orange It peel. was a Swiss chocolate. I don't remember which one, but it was one it was of those so Swiss funny. chocolate companies. And, oh, my goodness, dark chocolate-covered candied orange peel. Yum. <laughs> yeah, it is a good thing. Okay, here is my uh, what's making me happy in the food this week. And it is lunch out in the middle of the week. I love <laughs> this idea of going out to lunch in the middle of the week. We both work at home, of course, because of our career. We are around a lot. We're recording podcasts or writing books, and I'm teaching 
teaching a lot of literary seminars, so we're home a lot. And occasionally, we go out for lunch midday. And I have to say, it is one of the nicest treats there can possibly be. If you work in an office or and bring your own lunch, which is what I did when I worked in an office, brought my own lunch to save money, but brought my own lunch. But you know what? Every once in a while, I would take myself out for lunch and sit at the bar or sit at a table by myself. It's fine. It's a lovely thing. It's a lovely thing. I go with Bruce. We sit. We have lunch out. It's just it's just, I don't know whether there's something about lunch it's treating out. treating yourself. That is a good self-care wellness tip it for the is. New Year. Is once a week, take if you can do it once a week, take yourself out for lunch. Yeah, and it doesn't even have to be once a week. It can be once every other week. And it doesn't have to be anything fancy. I don't mean take yourself out to a five-star mm-hmm. restaurant. Mm-hmm. Yesterday we went out and I literally had a Thai salad at a place, oh, I don't know, about an hour away from us in New England. And it was just lovely. I sat there and had my Thai salad and my iced tea and we talked and it was it was like this kind of mini vacation in the middle of my week and it was really really nice the only thing that would have made it a real vacation is if we'd had a drink at lunch oh i yeah no i can't do that anymore (laughs) we were talking about that last night because we were were watching white lotus on hbo and they They seem to drink all day long 100 (laughs) percent of the time and i said to bruce i remember when i could go out and split a bottle of wine with bruce for lunch at you know we We'd be on vacation and we'd split a bottle of wine and that was like lunch and i said to him i, I just can't anymore i can't mm-hmm. i in fact when i went out and had my thai salad yesterday i thought about having a beer and then i was like no i'll just be wrecked for the afternoon you gotta I, come home and work not sleep right i gotta come home and i gotta <laughs> get ready for this class i'm teaching on gertrude stein marcel proust and sigmund freud i gotta get ready for that and i'll just be wrecked and not be able to a do a lot anything. of people would need a beer to do that <laughs> No, I need all my brain cells going together. Okay, so that's our podcast, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. We are certainly grateful that you are on this journey with us. Thank you so much for being there. We love doing this and talking about, I don't know, what's hip and happening in food, but also we love the interview segments of this podcast, and we hope that you will support some of the people that we interview. And we hope you will subscribe, you leave a comment, and please go check out my knitting patterns at BruceWeinstein.com net and at nice knitting patterns on etsy and come back again for another episode of cooking with bruce and mark